Welcome to Breaking the Barrier, a Western lifestyle podcast highlighting those breaking barriers both in and out of the arena. Today, I'm joined by Chuck Schroeder, a man who has worn many hats in the Western and ag industries and beyond, but someone who I think really embodies the cowboy code, if you will. Uh, thanks so much for being here in studio. Well, thanks, Rebel. Uh, great to be here. And I, I was, I was so intrigued when I heard about your program because I, uh, when I was roping calves, I tore down a lot of barriers. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. Well, so. it's not necessarily always a great thing, is it? <laughs> Oh, goodness. Well, your work has spanned from the university system to the Department of Ag to the NCBA, um, National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum. The list goes on and on. Um, so for listeners, lay the foundation of kind of where you've been and, and where you're at now, broadly speaking. Sure. Well, uh, to begin with, I was raised uh, on a ranching, cattle feeding farming operation uh, near Palisade, Nebraska, southwest Nebraska. And um, so certainly grew up in the Western lifestyle and uh, really thought that's what I would do forever. I, I grew up wanting to be a pretty good cowboy and uh, and worked hard to try to do that. Now, I, I have to say quickly, however, I grew up in, a, in perhaps a rather unusual home in that um, my father was a was a very serious uh, animal scientist uh, was very interested in research and very interested in performance testing of beef cattle uh, he had a little background in the dairy industry where uh, he grew to think that performance testing was important and so um, it, it was not unusual at our dinner table to have scientists from University of Nebraska, from Colorado State University, from Australia, uh, etc. So I, I grew up in an environment where we were looking constantly a good bit beyond the county line and uh, in our local community. And likewise, uh, my mother was a highly trained concert pianist. Um, we had a baby grand piano in our living room and <laughs> Uh, uh, I, I'm the youngest of her six children, and uh, one of the few who did not become a musician. Uh, she and my sisters tried their darndest to get me to be a good pianist, and I just kept looking out the window at the horses. <laughs> uh, so that didn't work out. But anyway, I, I was raised in an environment where um, uh, politics and religion and science and leadership and education were all regular topics of conversation at our dinner table, and uh, and I was blessed by that uh, because I was blessed to just be raised in a place where you're always thinking uh, on essentially a, a national or global scale, and where uh, I was surrounded by pretty creative people as well. So anyway, uh, so I was raised there. Um, uh, you know, high school rodeo did all that, played sports, did all the kind of stuff you do in a in a rural community, and um, again, always expected that, and my parents uh, expected that I would uh, spend my life on that ranch. So came to University of Nebraska uh, to get a degree in animal science, uh, was on the livestock judging team uh, here, and the rodeo team, uh, livestock judging team, without question, was a uh, life Forming, if not life-transforming uh, experience for me. Uh, R.B. Warren 
was the legendary uh, coach uh, in those days. I knew by the time I was 12 years old that I wanted to judge for R.B. Warren. And, uh, uh, you know, 50 years later, I've just painted his portrait. Uh, that's going to go in the animal science department, so it's been an interesting ride. But anyway, I uh, had, had a great experience at the University of Nebraska with some uh, really wonderful mentoring faculty members, uh, R.B., Jim Gosey, uh, uh, Ted Doan, uh, those guys just really invested in not just me, but, you know, all of us that were coming through uh, the institution at that time and, and remained invested in us uh, throughout our careers. So anyway, uh, graduated in 1973, went back to the ranch uh, where I thought that's where I'd spend the rest of my life and uh, got very involved in the uh, registered Hereford business. Uh, we were in the quarter horse business as well. I leased a band of mares when I was 16 years old and uh, have been fooling with quarter horses really uh, ever since. Um, uh, so anyway, I judged a lot of livestock shows around the country uh, during that time. I still rodeoed some. And uh, we uh, had some success in the Hereford business. Uh, we had a bull named SC Classic that won most every major show around the country and uh, sold two-thirds interest for 350000 in Denver in uh, 1981 and thought there'd never be a bad day in the cow business uh, <laughs> from that point on. But um, shortly after that, of course, this was the uh, during the ag crisis of the 1980s when um, just a lot of turmoil in the ag economy and consequently in agricultural communities as uh, people were being displaced from farms and ranches that had been in their families four and five generations and um, you know suicides and all just some real trauma and um, I would I, I came from a family that thought you ought to get involved in uh, politics and the leadership of your community. My dad was very involved nationally uh, uh, in the livestock industry. Uh, my mother was a longtime school board member and all kinds of stuff. So anyway, uh, this was part of our daily conversation and, and I, got, I got pretty angry about uh, the way I thought people were being treated. Uh, rural people were being treated by uh, financial institutions, by government, etc. And um, I've always been a pretty good fist shaker, I guess. <laughs> and uh, so uh, one thing led to another, and I, I got involved in politics and, and uh, uh, was first named uh, Assistant Director of Agriculture during the Kerry administration under, under a great guy, Rob Ron, who uh, remains one of the great heroes in Nebraska agriculture and, and Nebraska leadership. He was just a remarkable guy. So I uh, spent two years under Rob, and then he decided to uh, go back to the farm, and, and I was uh, named his replacement as director of agriculture. So it was a, which was a fascinating time in public service. I mean, this was a time when, uh, again, there was a lot of anger in the countryside and, and uh, posse comitatus and a lot of crazy stuff uh, going on. And, um, but I, I learned a, a very important lesson that time and it uh, under the leadership of Bob Carey who, who really drove it and that was uh, we couldn't fix all those problems but we could listen and we could try to be responsive to 
the way people were feeling. So I spent lots of time in uh, Legion halls and uh, church basements and um, various venues in rural communities across Nebraska listening to people and trying to understand what the issues were. And we tried to take action uh, where we could. But we're also honest with people in saying there are things that we couldn't fix yeah. and that government had no business trying to fix. It, and it, so it was a great lesson. It sounds kind of like your education and your parents were really a springboard in equipping you with, with the tools that you would need for this role and, and just the public service element of feeling a duty towards serving these people. Yeah, that, very true. And I mean, and I, and I should say, uh, I mean, I, I had a great debt to pay to the livestock industry and the Hereford business. Uh, I was involved uh, in national leadership programs uh, as a college kid. By the time I graduated from uh, the University of Nebraska, I'd spoken in 32 states um, to largely rural audiences and about, and um, I, <laughs> I used those opportunities to not just talk about uh, Hereford cattle, but I talked about <laughs> what I thought were big issues in our society. And uh, uh, old-timers were patient with me and let me do that. So anyway, I by the time I was out into the world, I'd seen a lot of the world, and I had seen a lot of different kinds of people. And by the way, I uh, had learned to respect people that weren't just like me. Uh, which which was a which was a, a critical issue, um, and I mean my mother, I, I was raised by a really remarkable mother. Uh, I mean her, the family her family history and politics of Wyoming are are legendary, um, and uh, but anyway my mother, who caught me looking down my nose or being critical of somebody <laughs> at some point in my youth, which I'm sure I did often. Uh, said to me one time, uh, you know, instead of looking for what's wrong with people, why don't, why don't you look for what's right in them? Believe me, you will never meet anyone, my mother said, who can't do something significantly better than you. So why don't you look for that rather than what you think is wrong with them and your life will be enhanced. And I've, I always tried to remember that lesson. And uh, so in politics, uh, whether it was was Democrat versus Republican politics or the politics of the livestock industry or uh, politics of rural communities. Um, I've always found that to be uh, an enormously important rule and tried to apply it. So anyway, uh, uh, after my brief foray in, in uh, politics, <laughs> um, uh, I had the opportunity to go to the University of Nebraska Foundation uh, which was, was sort of a crazy story. Uh, they approached me to uh, help with a fundraising initiative called Agriculture 2001 that had been based upon a, a huge strategic planning effort led by the university but involving all sectors of Nebraska agriculture and, and leadership from all sectors, uh, uh, led by Jim Roberts out in Lexington who became a very dear friend of mine and mentor and anyway, um, they had a set of objectives that they wanted to try to raise some money around. And so they asked if I would come help. And I said, you know, I know nothing about your business whatsoever, so I don't think this is even a rational <laughs> conversation. And they said, no, we just want you to come. And, and uh, uh, the, the president of the foundation at the time said, no, we just, you know a lot of people, and we just want you to come. And 
provide some leadership and and uh, we'll teach you we'll teach you about this business so uh, I agreed to do so uh, but uh, before I came to work uh, the president of the foundation was fired by the board for, <laughs> for many reasons <laughs> well so I was getting ready just to go back to the ranch and say I don't think this is any place for me but uh, Woody Varner who was a uh, legend at the university and then at the foundation in those days came to see me and said no don't don't be hasty this will all be fine I'll help you and well this will all be fine so I really with some significant trepidation but you, you couldn't say no to Woody Varner in those days <laughs> um, I, I came to the foundation and uh, what I thought was going to be a one-year maybe two-year gig and uh, ended up there almost 10 years and uh, uh, became executive vice president. And it was just without question one of the most rewarding uh, eras of my life. But it was really the first time that I went completely beyond uh, my agricultural borders uh, because my, my assignment with Ag 2001, again, less than a year, my role expanded and, and I ended up uh, involved with all four campuses as well as central administration of the university and uh, dealing with all kinds of issues that uh, were what would seem to be way beyond my field of expertise but uh, but I had to learn and it uh, again the matter of showing respect to people who did know about a broad variety of issues and and just treasuring the engagement with smart, interesting people in a variety of fields, uh, from Judaic studies to genomics to, I mean, it was, it was, it was pretty fascinating. And by the way, I, it was during that, you know, uh, for uh, October 19, 1987, was during that tenure when the stock market absolutely crashed. And I can remember Terry Fairfield, who was president of the foundation, and I were at a meeting at the University of Nebraska at Omaha with their chancellor, Dell Weber, making big plans for UNO when um, Terry got a message uh, saying, well, the stock market just crashed and we're essentially broke. The foundation, oh, no. We're broke. <laughs> and so, so Terry came in and, and uh, he... We walked out in the hallway, and he said, well, here's the situation. And I says, God, what are we going to do? Well, hell, he said, I think we ought to just go raise a lot of money. <laughs> and that's essentially what we did. Yes. And it was, um, anyway, that, that whole adventure with the foundation was uh, really a, a, a very rewarding chapter of my life where I got to work with so many um, older people. Uh, who were making estate plans, and uh, and I've always said that that experience was not about going out and begging people for money. Mm -hmm. It was about helping really well-intentioned people use their resources to make something happen that they couldn't do alone. Yeah, and it was uh, anyway. It was a lot of fun. I I met some terrific people. Traveled all over the country. Um, but it was uh, was a lot of fun, and and uh, again, not unlike the political deal, um, I could have stayed there forever. I mean, I, <laughs> I was I was reasonably good at what I was doing, and uh, but uh, some guys came along 
from the livestock industry that I really respected. Right, back to agriculture. <laughs> right, right. And um, they had this big idea. There had been a, a huge uh, strategic planning effort on behalf of the beef industry that had gone on for about three years, if I remember the deal correctly. Um, again, involving leadership of the six major organizations that represented the beef industry. And, and, and the beef industry was in a free fall. Uh, uh, they were losing market share to chicken and poultry uh, in a dramatic fashion. And, um, you know, people had concluded that beef was not a healthy element of their diet. And they, they, mm -hmm. they had some real problems, not, not to mention there were six organizations <laughs> trying to represent the U.S. beef industry that, that didn't see mm -hmm. eye to eye and had different plans and different objectives, uh, which just wasn't going to work. And so they concluded that there should be one organization and um, working on a single strategic plan uh, to try to uh, rectify some of these uh, issues in the beef industry. So uh, anyway, I was approached about being a, a candidate uh, to be their first CEO uh, for this organization that had not yet been created, actually. Uh, so it was insane. I mean, uh, I, if I had good sense, which has been true <laughs> a number of points in my life, if I had good sense, I'd have never done it. But um, I just, I really felt, going back to my college experience, well, college and high school with livestock industry organizations that had really given me an opportunity to um, see things, do things, to meet people, to learn things. Uh, I mean, I'd been to 12 countries in Eastern and Western Europe by that time, uh, thanks to the 4-H program. So uh, I'd been around, th again, mm -hmm. none of which would have ever happened were it not for people in the livestock industry giving me a chance. So I really felt, I really felt an obligation to try to use what I had to offer, which was perhaps some leadership skills and experience, uh, to try to help them achieve these objectives. So um, anyway, agreed so to be a candidate and... and uh, became their first CEO, to, and we put so, the pieces together for it. So at that point, you had this experience and this, this love for the livestock industry, but was there a part of you where your, your fight or flight was almost engaged? Well, sure, yeah. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, I've been scared half to death most of my life, I guess. <laughs> um, but... Uh, uh, I mean that's a daunting task. I mean we know we know and love our agricultural community, but with six different organizations coming into play, there's there's bound to be, you know, contradicting opinions and objectives about how to move forward with this organization. Did you feel yeah. pressure in that regard? Oh, every day. Yeah. No, it was. Uh, believe me, it was the most uh, politically incendiary environment that I'd ever been in. And by the way, I'm not, you know, so you've got that going in internally. <laughs> and by the way, you're also responsible for dealing with Congress and, uh, and other elected officials. Um, and by the way, during my tenure there of a little over seven years, uh, we got up one morning and uh, mad cow disease has been discovered. And... Um, you know, a disease that we didn't, we scarcely understood from a scientific perspective uh, that threatened to destroy demand for beef. And uh, so on an, on an international scale, 
And uh, so we had that to deal with. Uh, we had E. coli 015787 7 that uh, uh, threatened to destroy demand for beef. <laughs> we had uh, foot and mouth disease that uh, uh, particularly uh, Mexico uh, and but other areas of the world where that became a big issue. And uh, so communicating with the public about our product and what we were doing as an industry to deal with things like that was a, was a, was a pretty fascinating challenge, a very fascinating challenge. And, um, I mean, of all the things that went on during the time I was at NCBA, the fact that we came out of uh, particularly the mad cow disease deal with uh, uh, the American consumer having higher confidence in U.S. beef than they had before, the, <laughs> before uh, mad cow was discovered. So uh, th that was a pretty big deal. And anyway, and I, um, we, we put all the pieces together there. And actually, Nebraska Roots, uh, uh, Don Clifton, uh, the founder of what is now the Gallup organization, uh, who was a, a brilliant uh, psychologist and, and one of the leaders in the whole business of, as he put it, studying what's right about people rather than what's wrong with them and getting them to do more of what's right or what they're good at. Um, uh, Don was a dear friend and uh, helped me put together a very unique uh, uh, business structure uh, organization structure for NCBA that we used all the time I was there that, that really essentially kicked people out of their old comfort zones and their old roots and ruts uh, in the industry where they were tied to this particular faction and I mean people on our staff mm -hmm. that had come from these various organizations and felt these, it, it kicked everybody out of those zones and got them focused on uh, single set of objectives and uh, that would, again was a was a great learning experience and uh, came out of a respectful relationship I'd established with Don uh, when he was on our board at the University of Nebraska Foundation so uh, I I think it's fair to say and and others who've sort of looked at my goofy track have uh, <laughs> reached this conclusion that that one piece did feed another and another and another, and uh, so it's not quite as as uh, kaleidoscope wacky as it uh, as it sometimes sounds. Uh, did try to build one piece on another, but it uh, anyway. And then again, after I uh, everybody said the first guy at NCBA wouldn't last three years because you had to make a lot of hard decisions, mm -hmm. personnel wise, policy, program wise, and you wouldn't survive. Well, here I was seven years later, still there, and. Um, I thought, I guess I could do this forever, but I really had never, I really had never gotten up in the morning thinking I would be an association executive uh, for much of my life. It's mm -hmm. not, that wasn't my objective. Um, so I started thinking about, um, you know, is that all there is to a fire? Uh, <laughs> with the old song. But... Um, and so some some really cosmic things uh, occurred uh, during that time. I, I got a call one day from my dear friend Byron Price, who was the uh, executive director of the Buffalo Bill uh, Heritage Center in Cody, Wyoming, uh, one of the, one of the great Western art museums in the country. 
And Byron said, uh, look, I'm stepping down, going back to the University of Oklahoma, where he had, he had been in Oklahoma before, and I'm going to start the Sam Russell Center at OU, and uh, why don't you apply for this job? And I said, well, mostly because I know nothing about running a museum, um, and so that doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> well, he said, look, he said, you've worked for boards, you know how to raise money, you know a little about, I, I do have some art background that we haven't talked about, but anyway, um, you know a little about art, and it might be fun. He said, I don't think what you're doing is fun, and this is. And so I, I agreed to be a candidate for that position, but it was it had to be completely underneath the radar screen. I mean, all I needed was for editorial writers to start talking about that I was looking around elsewhere and it would it would just not be good for NCBA. Mm -hmm. So we we wandered down that path for a few weeks and then um, I was on my way to New York to uh, actually to meet with Bob Carey to talk about Bob has been a, a great mentor and guide and friend to me. So I, I was going to go visit about you know what next what next in this career. And I'm sitting in the Chicago airport, and I get a call on my cell phone from Victoria Reese, who was with Hydrican Struggles, one of the most respected executive search firms in the country. And um, she wanted to know if this was Chuck Schroeder. I said, yes. Well, she said, uh, I want to talk to you about an opportunity to run uh, a major Western Art and Heritage Museum in Oklahoma City. And I said, you have the wrong number. <laughs> and she says, well, why do you say that? I said, because I, I, I said, I know nothing about running museums. I don't even like to visit them very much. <laughs> oh, goodness. Uh, and so I, I can't imagine why I would be a candidate. I, I, think you're, I think you've got the wrong guy. No, she said, you're who I was supposed to call. And... Uh, so she said, where are you? I said, Chicago. She says, where are you going? I'm going to New York. Where are you going to be in New York? I gave her the address. She says, you'll be, you'll be 10 blocks from my office tomorrow. Surely you could take 30 minutes and a cup of coffee and let me tell you about this institution and the opportunity. If when we're done, you don't want any part of it, we'll part friends, I will have done my job, you won't have wasted much time, and uh, what the heck. So 10 o'clock the next morning, I'm in the offices of Hydroconstructors <laughs> in New York, and uh, talking to Victoria Reese, who became a dear friend. And um, anyway, so one thing leads to another, and next thing I know, uh, I was on my way to Oklahoma City to uh, be executive director and later president of the National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum, the old Cowboy Hall of Fame. Now, I have to say, uh, this is another one of those times that it, it was nuts. Uh, if, if I was a rational human being, it is, this is not the choice I would have made. But uh, so I, I, anyway, so I had, at the same time, I had offers from both the Buffalo Bill mm -hmm. and the Cowboy Museum in Oklahoma City and so I was, I was weighing the pros and cons and trying to figure it all out. So I, I go to Taos, New Mexico, uh, to meet with my, my dear artist, teacher, and friend, uh, Renate Collins. Uh, I had, for my 50th birthday, my wife had uh, paid my tuition to the Taos Institute of Art. 
to go do a summer session with Miss Collins, who I didn't know at all uh, when I went down there. And um, it, it, it really was a, a life-changing event mm. when I uh, worked under her, and she had, uh, it, it's sort of a long story that we don't need to go into today, but anyway, at the end of that session, she sat down with me one day and simply said, you are an artist. I want you to say that. And uh, she said it's, she put it, she, she's very German. She was raised in World War II <laughs> Germany. And she says, you may lie to me with that mouth of yours, but when you speak through your hands, I know I am seeing the truth about you. You are an artist. Say That's it. powerful. So, uh, so I went to Taos to talk to Miss Collins about uh, these two opportunities and to help me think through the best choice. So I, I got down there and went to her home and I've got this legal pad with a line down the middle and the pros and the cons and the this and the that and the numbers and all this and I'm giving her this whole pitch and she finally just threw up her hands and said, stop, stop, stop. She said, you're asking all the wrong questions. And I said, no, I'm not. I mean, we're talking about endowment. We're talking about the board and mm -hmm. their nature and their collections and their endowment and blah, blah, blah. Bah, she said, follow your heart. The money will follow you. You're not, you're you're, you're trying to make a case for something for which there's no case. And so there were big differences between those museums, uh, I just will tell you. Uh, the Buffalo Bill was very well endowed. Uh, mm -hmm. the old New York money had founded it in the first place. Uh, Cowboy Museum was essentially broke most of the time, uh, uh, deep in debt, and um, had a lot of, uh, <laughs> just had a lot of challenges. Yeah. <laughs> but... Uh, I had been there when I was a senior in high school. My dad took me down there, and uh, he, he loved the place and uh, said, this institution is about our kind of people. Mm. And I had never forgotten that, and um, I just really had this sense that here was a place that really mattered. Mm -hmm. It wasn't way beyond its collections, way beyond its programming, it was a place that was founded by cowboys. I mean, little kids uh, put pennies in their milk cartons uh, to, uh, in the early days to, to make a contribution to the Cowboy Hall of Fame. Uh, I mean, it was the stories are legendary uh, that went on to try to get the place established. And, and so in spite of all of its challenges, it was a place with a, with a genuine soul of the West mm -hmm. uh, to represent Western people and Western values. So um, I, I went there, again, thinking this may be a, a short-term gig, but I thought it was interesting. Um, and I ended up being really the longest uh, tenure that I spent <laughs> anywhere. I was, was there for 12 years. And... Um, and loved it. I mean, loved the institution, loved the community. Uh, we were, Kathy and I were certainly very embraced by mm -hmm. uh, not only Oklahoma City, but uh, Oklahoma and Oklahomans. Uh, I, I got back into roping competitively at a, at a pretty serious level. Uh, and it is the center of the universe if you yes. like to do that kind yes, of stuff. Yes, it is. I mean, it just, yes, it, it I, is. I, however you want to look at it, it, there's a world champion on every corner. And um, anyway, it was. I just loved it and uh, established very, very dear friendships there. But anyway, and then mm -hmm. thanks to good people, again, that 
um, I found I could trust and and with whom I had a respectful relationship who, who really stepped up to help uh, put the museum on solid footing. And we, uh, during the 12 years I was there, we wiped out $21 million in long-term debt. Um, we hadn't accessed our line of credit for three years uh, when I left. And um, it, and just people had smiles on their faces. Mm. Uh, way beyond the money, I, I had a great team that I had the opportunity to put together there. Just a, a wonderful team of people who were so mission-oriented and, and had Western roots. Who, who this, this was not an academic exercise for them. They, they really were trying to do something that mattered and um, the National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum became a place where cowboys felt welcome again, mm-hmm. where they felt respected, where they felt there were people there who were trying to tell their story um, in a way that was uh, a celebration and that was true. Um, and, uh, and again, showed them the respect that uh, a place with that name on the big label out front uh, ought to have. So yeah. it was a, uh, I just loved it. Well, it, it sounds like you really married your two worlds of your professional side. And then as you started dipping into that creative piece, I'm sure that was just a perfect fit. Well, it was, uh, yeah. I mean, the opportunity to, to get to know uh, so many artists there that I, that I really respect respected and and still do um <laughs> was uh yeah it was it was terrific and in and in particular um uh sherry mcgraw in uh, taos new mexico uh when when i after i'd been there this period of time uh uh ronnie green jb milliken at the university of nebraska uh approached me about this big idea, the Rural Futures Institute, that they wanted to try to establish at the University of Nebraska and ask if I would come and uh, lead that effort, which I, I agreed to do. I left in, uh, left in December of 2013. Well, anyway, at that same time, uh, Sherry McGraw, who I'd, I'd gotten to know through the museum, she was one of our, one of our premier artists, invited me to come uh, work in her studio uh, in Taos sometime. And... Um, to which I responded, I don't think I could. <laughs> and uh, she said, why? And I said, because I would be scared to death. Um, and uh, no, she said it would be fun and come sometime. And So anyway, so I, I came to the University of Nebraska and we, we put the pieces together to create uh, the Rural Futures Institute uh, that ended up eventually falling to budget pressures and such that I don't need to get into that uh, today at all. But um, anyway, during this time, um, I had started to work with Sherry. I went down and and first I just spent an afternoon at her place and that turned into two or three days at a time and then to a week at a time. <laughs> um, and uh, she and, and and I just loved it. I mean, and it was the first time I had really had done portraiture at a serious level. Uh, first time I'd worked much with live models, um, and um, but also working under Sherry and her husband David LaFell, 
Uh, both of them, David taught at the Art Student League in New York for 30 years, uh, Sherry for 20. Um, they're, they're just great teachers, but the core of their teaching is that what we're doing here is not trying to create pretty pictures, per se. We are trying to develop an understanding of who we are as human beings. Mm -hmm. And the better we understand ourselves through art, in this case, um, the better contribution we can make to the world. Yeah. And um, anyway, that meant a great deal to me. And so anyway, as time went on, Sherry sat down with me one day and said, uh, look, uh, we like your work. We think you could make a contribution to the art world over 20 years if you committed yourself to it and we'd mm -hmm. be willing to help you. Or, but she said, you could either do that or you could continue being a grouchy university <laughs> administrator. But you can't uh, really do that's both. That's quite the so, proposition. Well, you know. Um, and, uh, but so she said, pick one. And six months later, I, I left the university and, uh, uh, devoted myself full-time uh, to what is now Schroeder Fine Art and, uh, and absolutely love it. But uh, again, I couldn't have, I've fooled with art all my life. I mean, my sixth mm -hmm. grade teacher um, was the first to encourage me as an artist. I, I won an art scholarship as a high school student, which I never used because I wanted to be a cowboy. Mm -hmm. um, so it wasn't that art just sprang upon me at uh, age 50 or 60 or whatever, that isn't <laughs> true. It, it had been around. But the truth is I couldn't, I couldn't do what I'm doing today if I hadn't done the other things yeah. on, along, that, uh, along that path. So mm -hmm. it's all been, I mean, the, I guess the fundamental lesson here is that um, I just have been, I've been very blessed with people who have entered my life path periodically at key moments, and uh, given me permission uh, to do something I've never done before, and, um, and then to encourage me and provide me mentoring that allowed me to explore who I really am. Yeah. And I, I think, I, I mean, I just have to say, I think a lot of lives, I, I, don't, I don't hold up my life pattern as uh, the ideal for every human being on the mm -hmm. planet. It's not. I mean, I've, I've gone and done a lot of different things because I was interested in a lot of different things. But um, I see so many lives that are squandered, wasted, because someone adopted a label that somebody mm -hmm. else put on them yeah. as early as childhood. And they thought, I mean, I mean I've, I've had people say this to me. Well, yeah. I just, I can't do any, this is all I can do. This is all I can do. Mm. Oh, man. Labels, Not quite. No, labels are lethal. Yes. Labels are lethal. And, um, you know, God created us not with some label that uh, is across our forehead saying this is who you are. Uh, we were created with uh, every one of us uniquely with a whole kaleidoscope of interests and talents. Uh, we're, we're not, uh, Don Clifton used to say beautifully, um, it isn't that you can do 
anything that you want to do. Mm. Don always said, I could not be a PGA golfer as bad as I might (laughs) want to. I don't have it. But he said, you can do something better than any 10,000 other people we know. Yes. We know from research, and that's pretty good. And so, anyway, point is, we're, we're all created with a package of interests and talents that don't fit the labels that um, the world has tried to create, the boxes the world has tried to create in which we might be placed, because doing that makes it easier for somebody else <laughs> to organize. Yes. Uh, instead, we've got these things, and, and uh, uh, I just have been very blessed from the time I was a little kid uh, uh, with people around me, parents, s- sisters, uh, who just thought it was okay to be interested yes. in a lot of different kinds of things and to pursue them and to try to be good at them. Well, and the labels are lethal theme is one of the hallmarks of our conversation today that, that we chatted about earlier. But you, you've you really held some prestigious labels in your lifetime. How did you keep from letting those get to your head and, and keep in that um, service-oriented mindset? Well, uh, that that's actually a great question because it, particularly the older we get, the easier it becomes to say, well, this is who I am. This, mm. is, this is what my title is. I'm, I'm president of this thing. I'm chairman. <laughs> I mean, I'm, this is, and boy, I mean, I want to be very careful about not having anybody think I'm not that because uh, you've got all this, I mean, in some cases, financial <laughs> investment mm-hmm. in you. Uh, I mean, I've walked away from a lot of money. Uh, in my life, and I and again, it's not the rational economic man, but I just I, I don't know. I just I, I love change. I mean, I've since I was a little kid. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they, <laughs> they used to tell the story. I, I had a had a, an elderly woman in our community palisade that uh, babysat me a lot. My parents traveled a lot, so I stayed with her a lot. And and uh, they they say she would always ask Chuck, "Who are you today?" Um, because I would I would take on these characters and whatever. But anyway, um, I've always wanted to open one more door. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I mean, I, I, I've failed at things um, that I've tried, but, I, but I've always been sort of fascinated with what else and what else mm-hmm. is in there. And, and so, again, with the... the David LaFell notion that what we're trying to do is understand ourselves. I've always felt that by understanding that I've got all of these windows in my head, well, what's in Rebel's head Mm -hmm. that is beyond talking into this microphone? Yeah. Um, Because I know there's a lot. (laughs) And and it's, uh, but when you can do that, when you can look at other human beings and say, man, there's whatever, whatever their clothes are, whatever Mm -hmm. their economic condition might be or whatever, if you can look at them and say, "Man, I bet there's something really interesting." In yes. There. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's I think that's that's really neat. The way we ought to live. So, as you jumped from role to role, um, a lot of people don't make big life decisions because they're afraid of what might happen or the what ifs, and and I'm sure that is scary. Um, but was there any ever or ever any grief associated with those big life changes? Um, being afraid to leave behind all the great things you had to explore something new? Well, yeah, yeah. And, and of course, 
you know, as life goes on, I mean, I'd, I had a, I've had a great life partner in uh, mm. Kathy Schroeder. That's uh, we're, we're celebrating 50 years of marriage this year. Congratulations. And, uh, and, been, and so she's been with me through, you know, since college, mm-hmm. uh, through all of these things. And, um, uh, yeah, some of these, when I, when, when I get this big epiphany, which seems to come on me sometimes that, no, I want to, I want to go from here to here, which meant relocating, which meant leaving friends, home, schools, I mean, leave all this stuff behind and go to this next new adventure that has you know, a lot of blank space on it. Um, uh, it was really hard on her. Um, uh, you know, I was always really just taken with the new adventure, uh, but uh, it was really hard for Kathy. So, you know, I, I had to deal with um, what about that? Mm-hmm. Um, do, you, do you really think, are you so confident that this is going to turn out well, that you're willing to put her and, and our daughter and all this and that, put them at risk. Well, I mean, and I in the end said, yeah. Um, and, um, but, but they were scary. But I've, uh, you know, uh, Luke chapter 12, I mean, Christ talks about don't be afraid. He, he, he counseled his disciples, don't be afraid. And, um, you know, I mean, that's easier said than done. But I have to say, uh, even even as I've gotten into the art realm, um, I mean, I, I was was working on a major painting, first really big commission painting uh, that I'd ever done. I was I was in Taos and working on this painting of uh, uh, Father Stanley Rother, who was uh, a priest from Okarchi, Oklahoma, who ended up in Guatemala. Uh, in the late 1960s and and was murdered in the civil wars there was was the first american born martyr and so i anyway, was commissioned to do this painting of him and so i was i was working in sherry's studio on this thing and so i started out i was going to do this baptismal scene of father rother and so i started out i was just going to do this <laughs> this very small just the padre and his the the back of his mother and holding this child because that's and I was just gonna make it chiaroscuro and the and the rest of it dark around them because I thought that was all I could do, and uh, but I started working on this thing and and Sherry would come in and say, oh my gosh, no, you know, number one, we you know lift his shoulders and he's gonna be a saint for God's <laughs> sakes, you know, let's make him look that way. But anyway, and then it was wow, but no, but you've got to put his grandmother and I mean, they're just beautiful. Mm. She's got this huge just beautifully colored headdress she's got to be there oh and this aunt she's got to be there and and so i said well but i'm going to make this background all dark no she she would say the good he's in this 500 year old church that architecture creates this whole scene these old retablos that are centuries old are behind you oh you've got to put those in there but she would every day every day she would come to the studio and say don't be afraid don't mm-hmm. be afraid um it's fear is the biggest limiter the biggest lid on your capacity to do what you want to do don't be afraid Mm. trust don't be afraid and uh so i mean honestly every day i i revisit that thought 
and, uh, and it influences my art so much, but it also influences, quite honestly, just the way I see life and the way I see other people. Um, again, it's always easier said than done, but the truth is, uh, I mean, I, it was it uh, Mark Twain who said, um, I have, uh, I've had so many terrible things that uh, I've experienced, I've had so many terrible things in my life, some of which actually happened. <laughs> um, and it, we, we, we do, we imagine things sometimes that uh, are, are quite beyond yeah. the realities. But anyway, um, again, I, I always had a uh, mother who uh, preached that same thing. I've, I've had coaches and mentors through the course of my life at every one of these stages um, who have in in different ways and different words said that same thing mm-hmm. don't be afraid stick it out there yeah stick it out there and it's and I've always been rewarded for it so overcoming fear has been a, a big thing for you but also respect is one of your guiding values and principles talk about how that has manifested itself in your life well, uh, here this, this goes, you know, clear back to being raised in that ranching environment, and I, and I traveled a lot with my dad, uh, buying cattle, that kind of stuff. And um, you know, first thing my dad taught me as a little kid was how to shake hands uh, in a firm way, <laughs> because it showed respect to the person that I was, the person that I was meeting, and so there, there was in those days, and I think it continues uh, today, in the Western lifestyle and the Western culture, there is a demand for and an appreciation for respect. And I just, at every step in my life, um, anytime I could show respect to another person, regardless of their circumstance, show them respect. And by the way, demand respect in return. Respect is a, it's a, it's a two-sided equation mm. every time. I don't care what the relationship is. Respect is a two-sided equation. Give it, demand it, and by the way, when it's not there, walk away every time. Every time. Mm-hmm. So, but it's, so anyway, so I grew up in, in that environment as a kid. Then when I got into into politics, again, Bob Kerry was, a, you know, he would throw me into these situations constantly with people he knew that I disagreed with mm. uh, <laughs> politically, philosophically. Darn him. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I'll be a son of a gun if, and again, and, and he had this internal sense of showing that respect to people that he knew disagreed with him and whatever. Mm-hmm. And, uh, man... Next thing I knew, here were these people that I thought I disagreed with so sharply and so consequently I should hate them. It was just nuts. And mm-hmm. they became some of my dearest friends. And, um, and they're smart. I mean, you can be really smart and not think yes. exactly the way I do, you know. <laughs> and, and we, but boy, when you, again, when you look today at, the, at political speech that is, I mean, leaders that model disrespect and you wonder why our culture is suffering uh-huh. that it won't work 
it does not, it's never worked in the history of the world. Disrespect has never been a value on which you can build anything of value. It's mm -hmm. a destroyer. And so, anyway, I just, um, you know, cowboy, I mean, in, in the rodeo world and then the horse show world, um, I, I just have so many times seen the value mm. of showing respect, and and it just almost never fails to come back to you in such wonderful and rewarding ways. Uh, at NCBA, dealing with people from all parts of the country who have you know very different circumstances in their industry, and by the way, mm -hmm. in their local culture and all this and that which so often, you know, causes people to be in conflict. Man, when you can go in and with the idea of, I want to understand this a little bit better, and I think there's, they have values, mm -hmm. and um, when you can show that respect, man, the first thing you know, they want to know about you. And pretty soon you have a relationship on which you can rely in difficult circumstances um, and it's it, it to me is just it's just the key uh, the key to life, you know. At the at the Cowboy Museum again, struggling financially at times, <laughs> and all this and that, uh, and working in the Oklahoma City in in the broader community, but in Oklahoma City in particular, when I could go to business leaders and whatever and show them respect mm -hmm. for their role in the community, man, the return was tenfold uh, at least and um, anyway and so yeah. I when I when I visit with young people uh, today uh, it's just a theme I always try to harp on because they see so much modeling around them that says yeah it doesn't matter anymore yes you know it's all about me and it's all about my tribe and my, <laughs> you know um, and it's and it's just it's wrong and uh, if I can make one young person walk away saying I should try that. Yep. Well, uh, I think the I think the world's a better place. So. That's awesome. Well, Chuck, thank you so much for stopping by and taking the time. Um, you have so much life experience and wisdom that we can all benefit from, and I'm just appreciative that you chose to share it with us today. Well, Rebel, uh, you're doing something really important, and um, I, I admire what you're doing. And if I could make a small contribution to that, hooray! <laughs> Great fun for me. Once again, this week's guest was true Western advocate and artist Chuck Schroeder. As a reminder, new episodes of Breaking the Barrier are available every Tuesday and can be found wherever you listen to podcasts. Breaking the Barrier is produced by the Rural Radio Network.